It is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. We need urgent response. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't waste things. Think this world is precious. Think your time is precious. I think I know more about the environment than most people. All you can talk about is the money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. Hello and welcome to Hot In Here. I'm Jackson. And I'm James. And this is our podcast where we talk about climate change. And Jackson, it's a pretty grim time to be talking about climate change. My bedroom still reeks of mould from the floods here in Australia and a world leader is talking a lot about nukes. Yep, it's all pretty overwhelming and if we don't get our shit together, there's going to be a lot more devastation and probably, James, more mould in your room. I just think that's really unfair. I've only just started to see the logic in washing your sheets regularly and I could do with a little less mould. Dirty sheets won't matter, James, because you might have missed it, but the world's top climate scientists have released a couple of pretty grim reports recently. Here's one line. The window to secure a livable and sustainable future for all is closing. That's uh, that's great. You know, it's always nice to have some good, non-terrifying news in the mix of what else is happening in the world right now. Yep, the reports make it pretty clear we're going to see more floods, fires and droughts if we don't act now. And scientists say it's a matter of now or never to limit global warming. I think climate scientists need to speak to like a rug salesman or something to get more people involved. Like those rugs a million ads? Exactly, you know, maybe like a campaign that goes, floods, fires, droughts, come on down to earth, we're missing everything up. Well, the United Nations chief has opted for a slightly different strategy, calling out world leaders nonetheless. To quote Antonio Guterres, government and business leaders are saying one thing but doing another. Simply put, they are lying and the results will be catastrophic. See, that's kind of what I found confusing recently. It does seem like there has been a positive climate reaction to the war in Ukraine. Big European nations putting sanctions on Russia's fossil fuel industry. Is that just political posturing or is it a potential catalyst for more immediate climate action? Well, yeah, I think that's a question a lot of people are wrestling with. And it's one I want to put to today's guest, because on this episode, we are joined by another leading climate scientist, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. And I really want to know if she believes the invasion will hinder or fast track climate action. I wonder if Will Smith's slap will have an effect. Maybe you should put that to her. Well, maybe I will. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is Chief Scientist for the Nature Conservancy and teaches people how to talk about climate change. She even did a TED Talk that people should check out after listening to this. It's called The Most Important Thing You Can Do to Fight Climate Change and it has had millions of views. This is my chat with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Look, I want to focus this conversation on strategies for discussing the climate crisis so our listeners can learn about how we can all have productive or more productive climate change conversations. But just to begin, I want to ask you about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's unprovoked and brutal attack because Ukraine's uh, top climate scientist has described it as a fossil fuel war because the world's dependence on fossil fuels has really empowered Russia. So in your view, how is the war tied to climate change? Mm-hmm. 
not so much climate change as fossil fuel and resource use. So the quote is from Svetlana Krakowska, and what she said is that human-induced climate change and the war on Ukraine have the same roots, our dependence on fossil fuels. And she went on to say, and, and she said this during a call for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change final report that she was on, she said, we will not surrender in Ukraine and we hope the world will not surrender in building a climate resilient future. Okay, so to stop tyrants like Putin from using fossil fuels as a weapon, if you like, countries need to become energy independent. The rest of the world needs to rapidly ditch fossil fuels. How do they achieve that though? Many might argue, especially where I live in the United States, that energy independence could be achieved through depending on a country's own fossil fuel production. But the challenge is, is that oil and gas are part of a global market. And so the only way to truly be energy independent is to depend on renewable generated sources, not to ramp up fossil fuel production. Do you believe that the war will accelerate the transition towards renewables? Will it speed up the clean energy revolution? Or is there a risk that the war could actually hinder climate action? I wouldn't say that I believe either way because it depends on people's choices that I have no control over whatsoever. But what I would say is there's a good chance of either happening. And of course, the better thing would be the first. If this war is an opportunity and an incentive to accelerate clean energy uh, production, then that would be long-term a much better solution for energy crises in the future than if it is taken as a reason to just ramp up fossil fuel production. But what's going to happen, it depends, because there's very powerful forces, especially on the side of fossil fuels, who want to keep us dependent on fossil fuels as long as we can, because they are reaping the profits. So in the United States alone, fossil fuels are subsidized to the tune of over $600 billion per year, which exceeds the Pentagon's budget. Fossil fuel air pollution, not even heat-trapping gases, just air pollution, it's responsible for about 10 million premature deaths per year around the world. That is double the number of COVID deaths on average. And this happens every year from air pollution from burning fossil fuels. So although fossil fuels have brought us benefits, they powered the Industrial Revolution, which doubled our lifespan and, and significantly increased the quality of our lives, In the same way that we no longer use horses and buggies or party line telephones, it's also time to say goodbye to fossil fuels. Now, Catherine, talking about climate change, it may sound simple, but most people aren't actually doing it. Yet you believe that the most important thing we can all do about climate change is just talk about it. Why is that? Mm -hmm. It's the first most important thing because we aren't doing it. And if we don't talk about it, why would anybody care? And if we don't care, why would we know what we can do to fix it? Why are we not talking about it? Well, sometimes we just don't want to get into an argument with Uncle Joe. And many of us have an Uncle Joe, so to speak. But more often, we don't talk about it because it's depressing. Who wants to have a conversation about something that leaves you feeling even more hopeless than when you began? We don't know what to do about it. And if we don't know what to do about it, then what's the point of talking about it? So when we have these conversations, what we want to focus on is this. 
what's happening where we live. And in Australia, there are so many ways that climate change is already affecting people's lives. You can look at sea level rising. You can look at wildfires burning greater area. You can look at massive increases in flood and heavy rainfall events. You can look at record-breaking heat waves. How is climate change affecting us here and now where we live? And what do real solutions look like? Real solutions look like efficiency. You know, by using less energy, we would produce less carbon. Real solutions look like weaning ourselves off coal and oil and gas towards clean energy. Real solutions also, though, look like nature-based solutions that take carbon out of the atmosphere because we have too much of it in the atmosphere, but if we put it back in the soil and our forests and our grasslands and our coastal wetlands where we want it, that actually increases the health of our soil. It helps agricultural productivity. It actually helps with nature as well. And then, of course, we need to build resilience to the impacts that are already here. All three of those are viable ways of tackling climate change that give us benefits today as well as tomorrow. And when we give people examples of what's already happening in real places right now, um, you know, in your own home with your own solar panels or what's happening in the city where you live or the area where you live, people realize, you know what, we can fix this. And that's a conversation we need to have. You write in your book, uh, Saving Us, a book that I highly recommend um, that people really should read. You, you write that climate change is supersizing many of our weather events. Uh, as you touched on in Australia in recent years, we have experienced devastating bushfires and more recently a uh, flood. So when talking about climate change, just how powerful, and you just touched on this, just how powerful is it for people to share their personal and lived experience as opposed to, to sharing facts and science? Oh, it's it's incredibly much more powerful. So we've known the basic facts about climate change since the 1800s, yet they have failed to spur climate action. Why? Because of two problems, psychological distance and lack of efficacy. Psychological distance is something we humans always do. We, we see risks as being far away in time. Oh, they'll affect my children and my grandchildren, but not me. Or we see them as being far away in space. They're affecting, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, but not where I live in Australia or Canada or England. We see risks as being abstract rather than concrete. Global average temperature instead of, you know, the bills that I'm paying, the safety of my home, the air that I'm breathing. And so how do we tackle psychological distance? By speaking about our personal lived experience. What happens where I live? What's been happening to the air that I and my children have been breathing that's been choked with wildfire smoke? What's been happening to the heavy rains we've been experiencing in the floods? What, you know, what was my power bill like the last time we had a really severe heat wave? And then the other half of that is what can we do about it? And there, most of us feel like there's nothing we can do. We think, you know, I did everything I could. You know, I reduced my carbon footprint as much as I could. And then you read a news story about an airline that's flying 3,000 empty flights just to hmm. keep their gate assignments. And you think, I didn't even go to visit my parents last year to cut my travel carbon footprint. And here they are running these empty airplanes. What's the point? So then we're tempted to just give up, right? Because... If we think that nothing we do can make a difference, then why even talk about it? But that's where 
we're wrong because we can make a difference. But the most powerful way we can make a difference is using our voice to engage not just our carbon footprint, but our climate shadow, the ripple effect, how we affect people at the school that we attend or in the city where we live or the organization or business or company where we work or the club that we're part of or the church that we attend. Using our voice is how we influence others and ultimately it's how we change the world. The Secretary-General of the United Nations has branded Australia a holdout for failing to have a stronger 2030 emissions reduction target. How do Australians get their politicians to take more meaningful climate action? There's an election coming up in Australia in coming months and another guest on this podcast, another climate scientist, Professor Professor Michael Mann, uh, Mm -hmm. told me that Australians really need to vote for climate hawks. Mm -hmm. Federal politicians, national politicians are often the last to change. So I live in Texas, where if you listen to the news, you might think Texas will be the last place to change on climate. Yet most of the major cities already have climate action plans. The city of Houston, which is the home to the oil and gas industry in the U.S., is meeting its Paris targets. The city of Dallas has been running its operations off clean energy for four or five years now. Of course, Austin has had a climate plan for a long time, but so has San Antonio and El Paso. There's so much action happening below the national level, even in some of the places in the world where you might think that nothing is changing. But we need all of that to percolate up as well. It's not enough if only cities do it. It's not enough if only states or provinces or departments do it. We all have to do it together. And how do we change politicians' minds? By helping them see that who they already are is the perfect person to care. That climate impacts affect their district, that climate solutions benefit the people who vote from them. And not every politician will change their mind, but some will if we have those conversations. And there's a wonderful organization called Citizens Climate Lobby that's all about having bipartisan discussions with politicians about how climate solutions could benefit them. And for those who will not change their mind, we have to stop voting for them. So when having a conversation, you believe it's really important to to look for common ground, to to bond over values that we all share? 100%. So often we begin our conversations, especially with someone who we think might disagree with us, like a politician, for example, we begin over what we most disagree with them on. And typically that conversation will not go well. But if we begin with something that we have in common that we share, and then we connect the dots to how climate change is affecting the place we both live, the future of both of our children, the fact that we both enjoy birding or we both enjoy skiing or we both might be members of the Rotary Club. If we connect the dots to something we both care about and then show how climate solutions have benefits for us here and now today, as well as for climate change tomorrow, that's where the positive conversations can occur. And that's what I write about in my book. And I have some Australian examples in my book as well. Yes, you do. Um, Just finally, you've shared some wonderful advice, some wonderful strategies for for talking about climate change, for having having more meaningful, more constructive climate change conversations. Um, Do you have a challenge perhaps for, for our listeners? What's something they can do today? What's something they can do this week? I would love to challenge your listeners to have a conversation. Again, you might think, well, I'm not a scientist. It's not about the science. 
It's about sharing from the heart why it matters to you. And if you don't know of one, go out and look for a positive, constructive solution that you can share with people. You can say, did you know? So did you know, for example, that in 2020, during the height of the coronavirus pandemic, 90% of new energy installed around the world was clean energy. Did you know that we throw out about 50% of the food we produce and food waste is a huge source of heat-trapping gases? So simply by changing our shopping habits and changing our eating habits, we can be a big part of the solution. Did you know that... You know, big corporations like Microsoft and Apple and Nestle and Unilever are massively reducing their carbon emissions and decarbonizing their supply chains often as well. Did you know that, um, here's a good Texas fact, Texas already gets almost a quarter of its electricity from clean sources. If Texas can do it, can't Australia do it too? So share something positive, share something constructive. Ask people, did you know? Share something you do yourself, share something you know that your city does or your country or a company or somebody on the other side of the world. Have that conversation and see how it goes. And the power to change can really happen. So, um, A number of years ago, back in 2018, I gave a TED Talk called The Most Important Thing You Can Do About Climate Change is Talk About It. And about five months later, I was in the UK. And when I travel, I only travel when I bundle, um, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 to 25 events in the same place to be very efficient with both my carbon and my time. So I was in the UK and I was at the end of a very long day. I think it was maybe my sixth or seventh event of the day. I had given a talk at the London School of Economics. And as I was walking back down the aisle, I was really looking forward to just putting my feet up <laughs> and having a cup of tea. But I saw someone waiting to talk to me. So I stopped and he introduced himself, said his name was Glenn. He said he'd taken the train in from the suburb of London where he lived. And he wanted to let me know that he had seen my TED Talk And because of that, he had been having conversations in the city where he lived. So I thought, well, that's new. I'd never really heard somebody share that before. And he went on, he said, I have a list of the number of conversations that we've had. Would you like to see it? I thought, well, I've never seen that before. Of course, I would love to see that. So he reaches in his bag and he pulls out not 75, not 100, not 200 names. He pulls out 10,000 names. In the form of Wandsworth, where they've had conversations about climate change in five months. And because of that, the city council had voted to declare a climate emergency. Another year on, they had voted to put up 20 million pounds for climate resilience, which for a small borough is quite a substantial sum. And he just sent me a message yesterday on Twitter saying that now the borough of Wandsworth has a website about how to have climate conversations, about why it matters to people who live in their borough and what they can do to fix it. That is the power of a single person beginning to have conversations where they live. Yeah, it shows why we shouldn't give in to despair and highlights just how much power, how much impact we as individuals can have. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, that was Jackson's conversation with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Fascinating stuff, you know, essentially this war is bad news for climate. That's what I took from it. Uh, There is a caveat though. Putin's attempt to dominate energy supplies perhaps is giving leaders a push to actually look to sustainable energy, not just for the environment, 
but for reasons of national security. Well, as countries look to reduce their dependence on imported energy, climate activists are obviously hoping the war will serve as an opportunity, if you like, to spur us away from fossil fuels and fast-track the shift to renewable energy sources. But will that actually happen? Our guest, who is a leading climate scientist, admitted that she really doesn't know. And I've just read a story. The headline is, seven new oil and gas projects approved since IPCC report called for an end to fossil fuels. So there you go. And people listening to the podcast right now might be able to hear that Jackson's audio is a little a little different, a little less professional sounding. It's because Jackson's flown to Hungary in a bordering nation with Ukraine. He's currently helping refugees. What's, what's it like on the ground there, Jackson? Well, the scale of the humanitarian crisis is staggering. I guess it goes without saying. It's a desperately sad situation. More than 4 million people have fled Ukraine. Millions more have been internally displaced. Of those who have been forced to flee, some have been staying at a shelter in Hungary where I have been helping out. You have people who rock up to the shelter and they don't know what the future holds for them. They literally have hopped off a train. They've been told there's a shelter here. So they come here just asking if there's a bed they can sleep on for the next few nights and some food they can eat. Uh, These are people whose lives have been completely uprooted by a senseless war. Many of these people, though, say they would like to return to Ukraine. It's their home. It's where they grew up. It's also where they want to spend the rest of their lives. But they obviously don't know when they will be able to return or even if there will be a house for them to return to. So, yeah, a lot of heartbreak. Um, Just finally, there was even one guest who lost all of their family members in the war. So they are the only surviving member of their family. And now they have to somehow pick up the pieces, if you like, and try to start a new life in another country. So you you just can't even begin to fathom how difficult that must be for people um, like them. And there are obviously so many similar stories to, to that one. So it can be, yeah, pretty gut-wrenching hearing the stories that these people have to tell. But yeah, it does put a lot of things into perspective. It's incredibly bleak. You know, we try and We've tried to make a podcast about having a chat and having a laugh, but when you've, in your good nature and goodwill, have flown to a country to to help, you can see that actions needed now, uh, humanitarian actions needed now, environmental actions needed now, and words are a lot, but they're not always enough. Thanks for listening to Hot in Here. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. The show is hosted by Jackson Williams and myself, James McManigan. Audio engineering and music is done by Callum Hicks. Make sure you tell your mates about the show and start chatting about climate change. 